Thank you so much, Elder Kelvin, for leading us in our service today. Thank you all for joining us, Anita and the musicians, for always leading us in worship of God in a joyful manner, reflective manner. Above all, we praise God. We praise God for all that has given us in Jesus, and we thank you for joining us wherever you are. The theme we want to address today is this. Is God worthy or are we worthy? And we're going to reflect on that by thinking through God, temple, and our lives, our bodies. Because this whole portion about the tabernacle, the construction of the tabernacle, takes us in that direction. So let's ask again, is your life worth it? Do you know what you're living for? It's quite easy to have lost it or you're losing it during this pandemic, which is lumbering on, lingering on, weighing on our hearts and truly making us ponder what's the use of carrying on. How are you using your bodies? How are you using your time, your money, your life? Simon Lister is a world-famous photographer. And one of his great passions and concerns is that he travels to third world nations where he captures in his beautifully crafted photographs the looks of all those who live in poverty. And he tries to do that as best as he can from his skill, from his experience, from his passion, so that the photographs would move hearts. And when he takes it from where he sees them to a photograph, to, the moving, to moving the hearts, he hopes to move the hearts of the listeners, the hearers, those who see this, and for them to enter the world that he's seen in the flesh. And so it zoomed in, this particular episode, on him going to Bangladesh. And the children in Bangladesh, if you do not know anything about Bangladesh, it's one of the most, one of the poorest countries in the world. And so it's deeply rooted in poverty. And if you're deeply rooted in poverty, what on earth does that mean? If you're deeply rooted in poverty, what kind of children do you bring into the world? You bring children who are deeply rooted in a culture of child labor. Any parent who has a child sees them as a way out of their poverty. And so together with Orlando Bloom, known as Legolas, Lord of the Rings, he tours, he goes from village to village, town to town, right? especially in the capital, and they see children do what? They see some children work picking up rubbish. No sandals, no footwear, pure hands, just hands like this. And then they go to a mine and they see children working underneath. No masks, all that dust flying, no bricks, very little food throughout the day. And finally, this is the scene that caught me. Children working in a factory, house factory, where they were making aluminium, um, aluminium pots and plates and pans. And you know, there's a spinning thing to shape, to shape it into a bowl, into a plate. And they are working them as young kids, six years old, seven years old, no gloves, the metal bits are flying left, right and centre. And this, this child is just pressing the thing against the grinder, they're spinning at high speed, just pressing and pressing and pressing. Day in, day out, he does this. And when he shows his palm to Simon Lister and Orlando Bloom, his palm is just shapeless, with the flesh just hanging out. It's just a lump of flesh. When you're born into poverty, you're born into a cycle of purposelessness, powerlessness. You're born into a cycle of child labour. That's if you're born into poverty. So you ever pondered the use of your life, your body? What about us born into prosperity or middle-class living in the other half of the world? Some of us live as foodies and as foodies, we are eating our way through life. We are looking for the best uh, apps and the best uh, things to connect us, to link us to the latest and the best and the cheapest. For some of us in our prosperous countries, we are not eating ourselves out of life. We are starving our bodies 
to conform to some sort of body shape that the culture of the world shapes us into, pressurizes us into. Some of us are working ourselves away. Some of us are idling our time away. Some of us are gaming our life away. So I've met parents in different countries, right, where their children have been sent to boot camps. What kind of boot camps? Detoxing boot camps because their children as young as 10, 12, 14 are already addicted, so addicted to things on social media and the internet. Whether you're born connected or rooted to poverty or prosperity, whenever you're born with no connection with God, we become lost. And in poverty, we become powerless. In prosperity, you become clueless. When you're disconnected from God, and life is actually not worthwhile, if you're born into poverty, you're powerless, you're born into prosperity, you're clueless about what you do with all your wealth and all your free time. And after a while, life is not worth living. And God is not worth it. And life is not worth it. In prosperity, the temptation is to question God. Uh, in poverty, the, quest, the temptation is to question God. In poverty, the temptation is to curse God. In prosperity and middle class living around the world, the temptation is to forget God. And so if you are connected to your poverty, connected to your pros prosperity, but disconnected from God, life becomes powerless, clueless, purposeless. The Exodus story is about generation after generation after generation of Israelites born into poverty and slavery. 400 years of that, with no end in sight. And so they were powerless to change their circumstances as they lived as Hebrews under Egypt, the most powerful king and empire of that time. And they were then purposeless about life. But all that changed because all that changed, all that pressure, all that purposelessness, all that powerlessness change because of one reality, because of one truism, God. What is humanly impossible? What is humanly hopeless? Spiritually and divinely, when our lives are linked to God, massive transformation comes into our life. A transformation we can never dream of. And so, where do we pick up the story to end up where we are covering today? We pick it up in, from Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, and it says this in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. Okay, I'll try and get this, see where the slides are on. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've not just seen, I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I not just see and hear, these are all human ways of speaking about God. I know their sufferings. And this word know is a very huge word in Exodus. Know is a word of intimacy, a word of love, a word of endearment. I know of your sufferings. And it's just not just God knowing this cognitively, theoretically. Know so that like Simon Lister, no, so that I can take you into their world and enter their world and do something. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them out, out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so the Exodus story begins with generation after generation living in poverty and slavery, with powerlessness and hopelessness. And then we read this. And then it carries on. Chapter 3, verse 11. But Moses said to God, You're calling me. You are sending me. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. 
when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And so we say the story of Exodus, which is indeed a microcosm of the grand story of the Bible, which is the grand story of your life and my life under God, is we are redeemed from, from slavery to slavery to idolatry, our man-made world, for the worship of the true and the living God. And that transformation is very important for us to understand because this story is not a story about them in the past. This story about this is about the same God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, carried on through Moses' life and carried on finally to the life of the Lord Jesus and for us. And this is summarized, the second half of the book, in Exodus 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And what did God do to the Egyptians, who had enslaved his people for centuries, as it were, without repercussions, as it were, with impunity? And how I bore you on eagle wings and eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Brought you to myself. That is the purpose of God, a relationship with his people, an unhindered relationship with his people. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice, not the voice of Pharaoh, not thus says Pharaoh, but thus says Yahweh, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom. A kingdom of what? A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So redeemed from our man-made world of idolatry and redeemed for a God-given world of the worship of the true and living God. And what is the message? We call this the gospel, the whole Bible. The message that is there is the gospel. It contains bad news and then finally good news. Bad news about man, bad news from God, and then good news from God that he can give. Did you not notice in the Exodus story the gospel has this. There was no hope for Israel in generation after generation, century after century, no hope for her poverty, no hope for, for slavery, no hope for powerlessness, no hope for the oppression of Pharaoh and Egypt until God enters her world to do what? Not simply to offer education, not simply to offer self-improvement, but to totally turn the world around from self-redemption and self-rescue, he enters our world to redeem us. Saying firstly to the Israelites, unless I redeem you, you have no hope. Unless I keep my covenant, you have no hope. And that's very important for us to realise that that is the gospel. So the gospel, God makes us worthy by redemption. Actually, we are not worth God's second thought. We are not worth His love for us. We are not worth His sacrifice for us. And because He, as we read and heard in the previous message, this God is merciful. This God is gracious. He's abounding in love. He's abounding in faithfulness. He's slow to anger. He's just to punish. But in the end, His mercy triumphs over His judgment. And that is the only reason redemption first came to Israel. And now, redeemed for, what is, this, what is this relationship between God and His people? It must take place, the most happening place in Israel's life. Beginning when Israel was on the move from Egypt, to Mount Sinai and from Mount Sinai to Canaan, the promised land, the happening place where God will meet his people, the holy God will meet sinners, cleanse and atone for their sin. And that happening place was firstly the temporary tabernacle and then it will become the permanent temple in Jerusalem when Israel finally settles into that land. All those contours are very important for us. All the spiritual truths are things that 
will not just inform our minds, but indeed transform our lives. And so prior to this, we saw what? That the dark side of the golden calf, so for six chapters, God gave wonderful instructions for this tabernacle. And what was the necessity of this tabernacle? I want to ask you, what is the number one building that determines the rise and fall of your nation, wherever you're tuning into this? What is that, that one building or the one institution that you, if you knock off, you lose your sense of national identity, you lose your sense of national security, you lose your sense of, national, uh, of personal identity and security? What, what is it? For some people, it may be the Parliament House, or our politicians like to think that. For some people, it's uh, yeah, the Statue of Liberty. For some people, it is the Eiffel Tower. For some people, what's the iconic building? What's the happening place? It is the tabernacle. So God gave instructions for this tabernacle. Guess what? By chapter 32, before Moses could come down with the instructions, the people had built an alternative the golden calf was their alternative to the worship of God. What was wrong with the golden calf? They wanted to worship God on their own terms with the things that God gave to them. The plunder that God gave to them from the Egyptians, the silver and the gold and the bronze, the earrings and the, and the rings, the plunder, instead of being used for God, was used for idolatry. You know, the essence of the golden calf, rebellion, sin, disobedience, what was so bad about it? That they broke the second commandment, they broke the first commandment, they broke everything. Thou shalt not make any graven images of us, of, of God. What was so bad about it? There's another dimension we need to think about, right? And what is that? That you can approach God without a tabernacle, without a temple system of what? that you need to be cleansed and atoned of your sinfulness before you are allowed to approach the holiness of the holy God. All we need is to build a calf. We totally misunderstand who the true and the living God is. The true and living God first revealed to Moses is, I'm, a ho I'm the holy one. You are on a holy ground. And please tell the people of Israel, you have come, you have been invited to the Holy God. To think of anything, to think of a system of worship without, without atonement, without recognizing our utter complete sinfulness and the utter perfect holiness of God, His pure human imagination and pride, that the Holy God will meet you, likes to meet you, We'll invite you to heaven without anything that you have to do. Just make a symbol and just worship it. A golden calf as a representation of God, the holiness of this God. And so instruction between instruction and implementation of worship is disruption of it. So, so what cancels it? Is the God side of God that cancels the dark side of the golden calf. And so we have here voluminous chapters, and it looks so much like a repetition of the instructions, but now it has moved to preparation, construction, and the final assembly, assembling of God's people when this tabernacle is built. But we back the answer, we back the question. What is it all for? The instructions for the tabernacle, the prep, preparation for the tabernacle, the construction of the tabernacle. And so, the preparation for the tabernacle takes place in this way. Chapters 35, verse 1 to 36, verse 7. The construction, 36, verse 8 to 39, 43, and assembling. And when we analyse the preparation, it has a few parts. Israel is supposed to keep the Sabbath and should keep the Sabbath as a sign of obedience. And as we read the portion, as we have read earlier, and um, there's the contribution of material of the craftsmen. They are the two leaders who are in charge of the building of the tabernacle, Bezalel and Ohaleab, to lead the work. 
And then we read for the very first time the Spirit of God being mentioned, which tells you a very important spiritual truth, that when God redeems us and then He calls us, it is He who enables us and empowers us. From beginning to last, the redemption purposes of God is God-initiated and God-empowered. And then the people come, and as we just read in the Bible reading, they overflow with generosity. I just wanted to share this with you in terms of the Sabbath. And what's so important about the Sabbath? Slightly small, but it's quite important. You know what? God gave the Sabbath instructions at the end of the instructions of the tabernacle. And then, and that was in chapter 31. And then this portion that begins in chapter 35, for the completion of the tabernacle, it starts with instructions about the Sabbath. So allow me to read the Sabbath for you again. So chapter 31, and it says this, the final portion. The Lord said, verse, chapter 31, verse 12, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between you and me throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, the soul shall be cut off from among the people. Six days shall work shall be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does, not, whoever does work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. So what is it about the Sabbath we need to know? The Sabbath, a few things that are here, vitally important. The words, I sanctify you. You know what that means? I chose you. I set you apart. I ring fence you. I chose you and preserved you as my people. You are, not, you are special. You are not an accident. You are not you know, a second thought. You are my people. And then verse 14, this Sabbath day is holy for you. And verse 15, chapter 31, this Sabbath day is holy unto the Lord. The Sabbath day ends the instructions, begins the construction, because the Sabbath day was a sign that they were God's people. And what's the ultimate sign that you're God's people? The ultimate sign you're God's people is that you attend services. The ultimate sign you're God's people is that uh, you, before COVID-19, you, you physically came to services. The, the ultimate sign that you're God's people is you give money. The ultimate sign you're God's people, you serve in some way. The ultimate sign that you are God's people is you obey. And the obedience, so the Sabbath day was a sign of obedience. And the two things are very important. In creation, God created it in six days, culminates in the seventh day, and this is Eden. As a sign of God dwelling with His people is God's invitation to rest with Him. And the Sabbath day was to glorify God as they glory in God. But we rebel against God and we were thrown out of the garden. And God begins His plan, His redemption plan, by calling Abraham. And from Abraham's descendants, now that Moses has been called by God to do this, the redemption plan hovers around the tabernacle. The instructions for the tabernacle are given in six days. It climaxes in the seventh speech. And the tabernacle now is the new Eden where God will dwell with His people, the tabernacle will be in the centre, the midst of the 12 tribes as they journey from Mount Sinai to Canaan. God dwelling with His people is God's invitation to rest. The Sabbath day, if they hear God's word and they keep it, will be a sign of the covenant, a sign of their faith expressed in obedience. A sign of their faith expressed in obedience. The Sabbath, in the end, is to glorify God. Very important that we capture these things. Why? Because they will find its truest meaning in Jesus when He comes. 
and so is the Sabbath from creation as a pattern to redemption. It's all about God dwelling with His people. Is He worthy? Are we worthy? You will find the answer when you look at the whole architecture and theology of the temple. Where you come in and you come into the outer courts and you need to be washed and cleansed, and then the priest goes into the holy place, and then the priest goes into the holy of holies on behalf of the nation of Israel. And that's the most important building and institution in Israel's life. The construction that you read about in Exodus 36, verse 8 to 39, verse 43, instructions about the tent, instructions about the furniture, from the furniture within the Holy of Holies, the furniture in the holy place, three segments, and the furniture in the courts. And then there's the outside tent, then there's the inside court, the priestly garments. The most important thing to note is what do we say the Sabbath was? The Sabbath will be a sign of obedience. You will read repeatedly from chapter 35 onwards, the people obeyed all that God had commanded through Moses. The people obeyed all that commanded through Moses. We call this the sevenfold obedience. And as you read this, why is this so important? Could this be the repentance of the people for the golden calf? rebellion and sin and disobedience? Could this be their penitence? In all likelihood, this was it. Because in chapters 32, chapters 32, 33, 34, disobedience marked their life. From chapter 35 onwards, obedience marked their life to the point in which when God says, bring me all the material to build and bring me all the people to build, skilled craftsmen, endowed by the Holy Spirit, they brought. And they brought it to overflowing. So obedience, 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 every step of the way in the construction. A total reversal of the golden calf experience. And how the construction ends? The people completed the tabernacle, brought the pieces to Moses. Again, the repetition twofold, People did all that Moses commanded, and you read it seven times in those verses, in that portion. And so, important to get this right, right? If you read from chapter 35 onwards, let me read a portion of it for you. And the repeated word here is very interesting, as in contrast to chapter 32. Chapter 35, verse 20. Then all the congregation of the people of God departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred, uh, whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of the meeting, for its service, and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who of a willing heart brought brooches, earrings, signet rings, armlets, and everyone the big thing is, change hearts, willing hearts, moved spirit. This was the penitence and repentance that is there. So you may have heard in the sermon this, um, this year, I think it's quite well known how we, we delegate our, our duties in the home between Mona and myself. She does the cooking, she does the marketing for food, I do the cleaning, etc., and so for my birthday, she bought me this year a wonderful spin-around mop. <laughs> really, really good. I'm enjoying that. But to be fair and give you a complete picture, she not just bought me that mop, she also bought me a vacuum cleaner. Right? That one of those robot vacuum cleaners. Okay? I think it was the, the brand is Xiaomi because the price has gone down so much. And I never knew what this could do and boy, put it on, it does a pretty good job. It really does. Spins three rounds in, around my entire lounge and kitchen, does a wonderful job. So I was thinking, what's the difference between that Xiaomi vacuum cleaner and me? Is there any difference? <laughs> I, I hope there's a difference. 
that Xiaomi vacuum cleaner is getting its instructions from a satellite somewhere out there. When it does the cleaning, it's concerned about no one and is accountable to no one. Right? It's not out to please anybody. When I do the sweeping or the mopping or the cleaning, I'm now concerned. I'm with an extra edge of concern because now we have a grandchild and when the grandchild comes and we look after her and then she's, she's six months and she drops her things, her spoon as she eats and the floor is dirty. I'm concerned about the hygiene and now during COVID-19, I'm concerned about the viruses and the bacteria. So my, my obedience, my cleaning is based on concern and love. People to be accountable for, people to love. God's people could have just obeyed these instructions. You know, completing a project, finishing a house, you can finish it, but you quarrel all the way to finish the project. That's not the attitude God wanted from His people. So the sevenfold repetition and the description of willing hearts and moved spirits showed that there is a difference. They were not simply instructed by God, go and construct this, and all the way they drag their feet, they grumble in their hearts. No, you get a picture of overflowing hearts with overflowing supply. So much so Moses had to say to them, don't bring any more. We have no space for this. Enough. We can see this. And so it's a mighty thing that the people heard this. The construction ends. Where does that take us? As you listen to this, what on earth does that have to do with you and me living in the 21st century, living in Singapore, living in America, living in Canada, living in, in Thailand, living in Malaysia? What on earth does that have to do with you and I? A lot. Because God's story in creation and God's story of redemption promised to Abraham, carried out through Moses, fulfilled in Jesus, vitally important. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 to 10, says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Which means the kingdom of God is not a free-for-all. Entry into heaven is not a free-for-all. And God's warning to us, beware. Beware the continuation of sin as we lightly presume and lightly proclaim or lightly think we are God's people. We are the church, we are Christians. Because the continuation, the perpetuation of sin in your life and my life will ultimately disqualify us from God's kingdom. Paul the Apostle writes this to the Corinthian church. Praise God, he has planted a church. But here is the worry. The worry is he has planted a church in Corinth, but the Corinthian values haven't been perched out of their veins, out of their arteries and a very huge Corinthian culture and value were they were very loose in their sexual immorality very low view of God and very low view of sex and so you know I may have shared this in different settings we were out for one hour walks Mona and I we went to East Coast Park here and then you know Mona was walking ahead of me because I had to take a phone call which I don't like to take on a Monday or a rest day but it was an emergency phone call and so I took it. By the time I caught up with her, she was standing there and one or two people looked. She had found a bird that had fallen off. Have I told you the story? But it's worth telling. So we went closer and look at it. It, was, it had red ends all over it. And if it had not found it, right, the red ends would have surrounded it and poisoned it, bitten into it, and then slowly devoured it, ingested it. And so, what did we spend time doing? So, Mona was on the phone trying to ring who, would, who might take this bird, the SPCA, some rescue organization. And so, there I was picking it up, picking it up, picking it up. And finally, after making a few phone calls, I, I finished picking out all the ends, I, I thought. And then she said, the, the advice is uh, just to leave it here. 
there may be a chance that the mother might come back, very low chance. But because even as you, you bring it to us in a shelter, animal rescue place, uh, we, we have no capacity to keep it. I mean, it's, we are just overflowing here. I was thinking to myself, after all that effort, we're just going to leave it back and then the ends are going to come. And so the lesson, the tragedy was, the tragedy of self-rescue, save only to die, finally. That's the tragedy of our human rescue. Whatever we think of, from our education to our science to our technology, we are thinking, we are making massive improvements. Our problem is sin, and the punishment of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. There is no amount of self-rescue and self-improvement that will take us away from that, that will rescue us from that. So everything we do temporarily seems like we are making progress and we think that death is merely a biological problem, that death is mainly an aging problem, that death is mainly a sickness problem, death is a spiritual problem. The wages of sin is death. And it takes the final redemption through Jesus Christ dying on the cross, rising from the dead, to destroy the devil's work, to mislead us from God, to forgive us of our sin, to absorb God's wrath, and to pour out God's mercy and grace and abounding love, giving us a new eternal standing, enemies of God formerly, children of God now. If we, if we have heard the gospel and believe in Jesus, there is no such thing as continuation of sin. And he says this, this is what some of you were. You were washed from your previous sins. You were sanctified. This is a word from the tabernacle. Set apart for God. You were justified, given a new status. So please do not go back and continue with sin. The continuation of sin, the perpetuation of sin, of any kind of sin, but here in chapter 6, he's talking about sexual sin, will one day confirm we are not the redeemed people of God. There is a Redeemer means no condemnation of past sins and no desire and no continuation of present sins against God. So where am I? Where are you? As we come to know the Holy God through the Holy One of God, Jesus, the Lamb of, the God, Lamb of God who sacrificially, lovingly laid down His life on the cross for us, we cannot simply plead no condemnation of past sins but carry on with impunity, with lightness of heart, with present sins in thought and word and body. So does it... Is he worthy? Are we worthy of his redemption? What's the meaning between God and temple and bodies and lives and our time? A lot. Everything. Just in case you tune off in the message of Exodus, it was only a small picture, a forerunner of what God would finally do for us in the gift of his Son. So salvation in two tenses. Before believing in Jesus as my Saviour and my Lord, I live this way. But after I come to believe in Jesus, I must live a new way. This is what some of you were this is not some of you currently are and can be forever and still pop into the kingdom of God. No. And so the important thing to realize is this passage. We are to flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body and do you not know? What is your body? What's the link between God and temple and body, hear this. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So glorify God in your bodies. So if you haven't captured anything, here is the big lesson. The tabernacle, 
temporarily as Israel journeyed from Mount Sinai to Canaan and finally has arrived in the Promised Land in Zion, in Jerusalem, they build the temple. And the temple is raised as the meeting point between God and His people, where they will respond to Him in faith and obedience, listening to His word, listening to His voice. Israel's history is a history, very sadly, of failure. Failure to have faith, failure to obey. And so they fail, and the temple is finally fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. The most happening place is a happening person. The most happening place where you can meet the number one person that will give a zing to your life. Whether you live in poverty or whether you live in prosperity, whether we live with purposelessness or powerlessness, or whether you live with cluelessness and purposelessness, the one who will put all things back in place is Jesus. Come to this happening place. Come to this happening person. And when you give your life to Jesus, we become a temple of the Holy Spirit. And isn't that what we learn from creation to redemption, Eden, and then tabernacle and temple, is ultimately the worship of God is to glorify God. And that's what Paul picks up in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So, were you worth Jesus' effort to love you, choose you, die for you? Is Jesus worthy of your worship? Is God our Father worship of, worthy of your worship? Answer, yes. Is He worthy? Are we worthy? The body, this body, the body is the person, the person is the body. This body that God created is not meant for sexual immorality. This body is meant for the worship of God. Isn't, doesn't it sound like, it sounds familiar. This body, this life wasn't meant for the idolatry of Pharaoh and his dreams, where you'll be enslaved to the slavery of idolatry, man-made worlds with man-made answers of utopian life. But this life and this body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So they live perhaps with Greek philosophy in the Roman world, that there's a disconnect between body and eternity. What I do with my body, I can go to a red light area and sin, sin, sin. I can drink, drink, drink. I can mess it up. I can hang around who I want to hang around with. I can Google who I want to Google with. I can be in virtuality with who I... But virtuality and now earthly reality doesn't affect my eternity. And Paul says, that's a lie. There is no such thing as platonic or any other philosophical getaway in which there's a disconnect between your soul and your body. What you do with your body, in God's eyes, your bo the body is the person, the person is the body. And you as a person are totally responsible and accountable for what you do with your eyes, what you do with your, your, your hearing, what you do with your tongue, what you do with your feet, what you do with your hands. Everything that you do is accountable to God. So, four reasons to treasure our bodies, four reasons not to trash our bodies, He will give you in 1 Corinthians. And He can only but summarize for you. He says to them as the crowning principle, Christ died for you. You were bought at a price. So here is the redemption reason. The next time you want to look at porn, the next time you just want to join some sort of gossip out there, the next time you just want to game endlessly forever, the next time you just want to swear against your dad or your mum, please take note that when you trash your body and trash somebody else's body, Christ died for this body. The second reason is Christ rose for this body. This is the resurrection reason. And this body that is that will be raised with Christ when He returns, will go on forever and ever. It's like Celine Dion's song, on and on. The, the astronauts say, you know, when you fly up there, the, the, the thing that goes on and on that you can see from outer space, 
a few things you can see from outer space. What is it you can see? The Great Wall of China. It's been centuries. It's still standing on and on. The most everlasting thing is the Great Wall of China. The most everlasting thing are the pyramids and the Sphinx that the Egyptians built. No. The most everlasting thing is the body that God created. He created it. It rebelled against Him. God never gave up on the body. He never gave up on you because the body is the person. The person is the body. God made this body. That's why He redeemed this body. He redeemed this body at the greatest cost of His Son. And guess what? There, there is a fourth reason. And the fourth reason is not just that Christ died for this body. Christ rose for this body. Why? Because God had originally created this body. And the Holy Spirit lives in this body. Here is the sanctification reason. Four reasons to treasure how you live and not to trash. And if your eyes are looking at the wrong things, you are really dishonouring Jesus and the cross. If you are listening to the wrong things, you are dishonouring Jesus and the cross. If you are speaking the wrong things, you are dishonouring Jesus and the cross. If your feet are taking you in the wrong direction to the wrong places, you are dishonouring Jesus and the cross. If your hands are doing the wrong things with the wrong people, you're dishonouring Jesus and the cross. Four reasons not to trash and trivialize and undervalue. Four reasons not to abuse and misuse your body. And four reasons to treasure your body and to glorify God. From the time you wake up, how can I glorify you, God, with my eyes? How can I glorify you, God, with my ears, with my hearing? How can I glorify you, God, with my lips? How can I glorify God with my fingers? Can I type a message to, to bless somebody, to encourage somebody? How do I glorify you with my life? It's a very huge difference, friends. And the whole theology of God, temple, and bodies, and life. So is he worth? Is he worth it? Yes, he is. I bumped into one of my students in Bible College when I went to give a pastor's conference. He came up to me, shared his life a little bit. And then, you know, he shared about his children. I lectured him years ago. I do not know, 15 years ago or so. And then caught up about his children and says, uh, yeah, his, one of his sons is tuning into our, our live stream services every week. And as he tunes in, let me try and read it for you. As he tunes in, uh, he's now in the army here in Singapore ser serving national service. And um, he gets a small allowance or salary that, that's being paid here. And what's he doing with his salary? He tunes in to listen to God's word. He's tithing his NS salary and giving to ARPC, Adam Road Presbyterian Church, this past year. Because the parents, being faithful parents, have taught him to give to any church that feeds you spiritually. And the father, my, my former student, says, and I believe that there are many like him now who are tuning in as your virtual congregation during this pandemic and being touched and moved by the gospel and giving to God. A young man in the army giving sacrificially of his money, which rightly belongs to him, to where he hears about Jesus and what Jesus means to his life. Is God worthy? Yes, he is. Is Jesus worthy? It's now here in Singapore, most of Southeast Asia, holiday time. Praise God, praise God, the holidays are over. There is danger during exam time, the stress and the mental health. Do you know there's also danger in holiday time? Why? Because an idle mind is the devil's workshop. What are you going to do with six weeks of holiday? What are you going to do Six times seven, 42 days. Morning to night, nothing to do. I, I, what are you going to look at? What are you going to listen to? Is there something more profitable than vegetating your life away? Is there something more meaningful than just pleasuring yourself until you, you, you're stoned or bombed out? Is he worthy? Because there is a Redeemer, there must be a transformation 
in the way we use our lives and our bodies. Once God redeems us and connects us with Jesus, life is different. And I pray that this will be the case. As our time comes to an end, you have heard the glorious gospel. Whatever you've been giving your life and your body to that is not connected to God and Jesus' saving love and work for you, it's time to repent. And in hearing Him, give your life to Him. Wherever you are, here on site, we're going to stand and sing this song. There is a Redeemer. But before we sing it, I'm going to close this in prayer. And as we close this in prayer, I just want to leave two questions with you after we sing the song. Questions of being set apart. Questions of being the special covenant people of God. Questions about being consecrated to Him. Musicians, please come. Let's spend some time in honest, needed prayer to God. And our prayer to God must always begin with confession. We come to you, O holy God, and confess in hearing your word, in hearing the gospel proclaimed, that most of us do not know what to live for. We do not know how to use our lives and our bodies each day. Some of us around the world are born into poverty, and in that poverty, there's powerlessness. Some of us are born into middle-class home and prosperity. We are born into just not knowing what life is for. As we spend it in idleness, just pleasuring ourselves from day to day. We thank you that you have not left us in this lost condition. You're not left us to find our way out of this. You have reached out to us. And you began that plan through Abraham. You carried it on to Moses. And as we read now and understand your instructions, redeemed from idolatry, redeemed for the worship of the true and the living God. Redeemed for worship in the tabernacle. Redeemed to walk away from sinfulness, to walk and live in holiness. Redeemed as the people of God, never to waste our life. We thank you that this has all come to pass in all its perfection and fullness in Jesus. And we pray, Lord Jesus, as we hear the gospel and give our life to you, that our prayer is for repentance, not to waste another day, not to waste another breath on the useless things that so dishonour God, and so dishonour you and the cross. May we humbly accept you and love and give our life to you. There is a Redeemer. You are our Redeemer. Our lives can be different unto your glory. Amen.